Welcome to History 21, the podcast, a production of the Anoka County Historical Society, sharing the stories and audio journeys from our county's past and present. Hello, Rebecca. Hi, Sarah. We are on deck here for official episode number six. That's not my lucky number. My lucky number is three, in case you were going to ask. I should have asked. (laughs) For our episode today, I am really excited to share things that I found from our collection. As we've been making these podcasts, I've been scrolling through the oral history interviews that we have in the collection here at the County Historical Society, and I found a really good one. We've got so many. It amazes me how many different topics we actually have oral histories on. What did you find? Well, we have oral histories on agriculture and like World War II and all of these things, but this one is all about firefighting in Columbia Heights. What? Yes, Denise DeMars was the first female firefighter at the Columbia Heights Fire Department. She started as a volunteer in 1978. That's brilliant. I was a year old. Sorry, Denise. I was a firefighter for an entire 20 minutes. What? Explain, please. I, back in my journalism days, I was at a controlled fire burn, and I was taking pictures and making notes and being a nuisance to all the firefighters that were on the scene. And one of them looked at me and said, would you like to go in? And I said, sure. So they dressed me up in all of the gear, which at five foot four uh, was way too big for me. And I rolled everything up and I schlopped around and they actually let me go into the building that was on fire during this control burn. And I got to walk around the building with the air tanks and everything on and spend about 15, 20 minutes inside the building. It was a very surreal experience. Eep. I don't know how I would react to something like that. It was very surreal and something I hope I never do again. But Denise would know exactly how that would go. She talks about her experience um, fighting fires and then eventually becoming a deputy fire marshal and investigating fires for the state. Sounds super interesting. Shall we get into it? We shall. Onward. This episode contains sensitive language we do not contone. About two-thirds of the way through Denise DeMar's 2008 oral history interview, she recounts a conversation in which the N-word was used in her presence in 1980. We have decided to leave this portion of the interview unedited, not to be insensitive, but instead to reflect how history must acknowledge the evolution of social mores and language. We invite you to think about Denise's response to the power structure at the time, her reaction recounting the event 28 years later, as well as how you might handle the situation if you were in her place. This is April 4th, 2008. I am at the History Center with Denise DeMars, my name is Darlene Burrell, and we are going to talk about firefighting and other things. So, Denise, thank you so much for being with 
meet today. And were you born in Anoka County? Oh, I was, yeah. I was born and raised in Columbia Heights. What was your father's name? Joe Edwards D. Myers. Was he from the Anoka County area originally? Yes, his father and mother settled and were some of the first people who ever were Columbia Heights people. So, what do you call those? The uh, founders. Mm -hmm. My dad's dad was also a Columbia Heightser. You are a firefighter. You were a firefighter, now you're a fire marshal. Let's talk about your beginnings as a firefighter. What, pardon the pun, sparked your interest in firefighting? I never had an interest in firefighting, and when I was um, first married, I probably was 21 years old, <clears throat> the Columbia Fire Department put an ad in the paper because they were looking for more what they called volunteer firefighters. They got a small stipend, but they were looking for people to you know, be on the volunteer squad. And my husband was uh, 6'5", 285 pounds, and I ran up to him with the newspaper and I shoved it under his nose and I said, hey, you could do this. And he read it and he handed it back to me and said, no, you could do this. And that's what got me to thinking that, you know, perhaps I could. So I applied and I took their tests and I was accepted as a volunteer. And then two years later, they tested for, excuse me, <coughs> for career, you know, full-time firefighters. So I tested for that and was fortunate enough to earn the job. I was only with the department two solid years when I tested for full-time fire and then I made the decision to be a come firefighter. What was the reaction of the of the staff there and the other firefighters when you said, I want to do this? Oh, you just thought that the world was caving in. <laughs> it was just, everyone held their breath. I you never, it was just, you could, it wasn't literal, but you could figuratively see and hear people just hold their breath when they knew a woman had applied to the department. Oh, gosh, what do we do now? Mm. <laughs> so they were all, they, all the firefighters and all the fire officers, and I know that the city council and the staff were all walking on eggshells the whole time because, oh, what do we do? Oh my God, a woman. Because this was at the time when women were starting to sue to be able to um, say, have their baby come in at lunch and breastfeed him. Um, all that stuff that hit the papers in the 70s. And a women's liver was a bad name. Remember that? Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it was just awful. My biggest supporter was my mom. She was absolutely thrilled. My second biggest supporter, by just a hair, was my husband, Jeff. Oh. He stood behind me every inch of the way and said, oh, you can do this easily. And don't let anybody tell you no. And if they give you any trouble, you come see me. And he meant it because he was great big and used to getting his way. And I... I had such great people standing behind me applauding 
whatever came in front was a little easier to handle. And it was like getting hit in the face with a wet towel. Oh. They wanted an interview with all the people who had applied. So I went into this room and there was five or six or seven fire guys and fire officers and chiefs in there. They had this list of questions that they wanted to ask you, you know, do you have any schooling and where do you live and are you willing to, you know, miss a lot of meals and do training on Monday nights? And finally one guy looked at me and he said, what are you trying to prove? What exactly is it you are trying to prove by coming in here? And I was just floored. And I looked at him and I said, I have nothing to prove. I'm here because I think I could do a darn good job. But I, the more I thought about it, the madder I got. And I, today you couldn't ever, ever ask a question like that of, of anyone. And I was just insulted. And, of course, that's one of many times that people are absolutely out of mind with me. But that's where it started. And all I did was go in and do everything they asked of me to the best of my ability and never let myself down. I never failed. I just did a great job. And after a while, they finally had to just snap their mouth shut and let me do the job. There was many people who were so wonderful to me. And there was also some that were absolute bastards. What was your first fire like? Do you remember that? I'd been on fires before, but the first time I was allowed to actually be the first one through the door and do the the big firefighting thing was a fire down on 40th Avenue where it was a second story above a business that was burning. And I can remember suiting up and dragging the hose and kneeling down getting ready because you have to wait until there's at least one person in back of you before you go in. And I felt somebody in back of me and then the captain, who was the one who was also running the pump, came up and he leaned over and hit me on the back real, like, um, like a big pat on the back. And he said, go get him, girl. And I went up the stairs and I got in there and he put the fire out. And I went, oh, that was kind of fun. <laughs> I can remember sitting at the station one night. And I'm going to jump all over the little bit. That's good. That's good. When... I was, this is when, when I become a full-time firefighter, so I was working my regular shift, and my partner called him sick, so he was not there, so he had to fill the roster with others. So one of the volunteer captains came in, and then two more volunteers came in to help fill out the shifts. So we had a total of four of us, man, captain, it was me, and the two volunteers who came in to fill in were also women. Because by this time we had more women come onto the volunteer force, right? Because I'd already been on about four years. And then they both came in, and we were sitting there eating pie or doing something, which you do in the evening. And the fire captain looks around at all three of us, and he says, Boy, I hope we get a fire. And I said, Why are you hoping for a fire? And he says, Because I want to pull up on that fire scene with an entire company of women and have everybody watch you guys kick ass. Oh, I was so proud. Oh, isn't that nice of him to say that? He was a very big backer of women, too, or of anybody who could do the job. 
when I first got on as full-time, and I'm not, and I, not the two final one, but I earned that job. I didn't, I wasn't given extra points for being a woman. I wasn't given any extra consideration. The test was blind and that you were just a number until the very end. So I, I, I did earn my spot as the person they offered that job to over all the other men who applied and tested. There was one, I remember two. The number one fellow who was offered the job, as it should be, he declined. He did not want to be a full-time firefighter. So then they came to number two, which was me, and said, you are now the top candidate. Would you like the job? And I said, yes. First full-time shift I pulled, I was doing my job. I knew what to do. I'd been there two years. And my captain came walking into the um, place where I was working and said, have you noticed all the people walking by the door today? And I said, no, I haven't. He said, keep watching. So I'm watching out of the corner of my eye, and every few minutes someone would come by the door to the fire station and would crane their neck and try and look in, but keep walking without breaking stripes. And the captain started to laugh. He said, all day long, that all the people in the city offices have been coming down to see the new lady firefighter. And he said, so I went upstairs and I was listening. I wanted to hear what was going on. And this woman came running in and she says, I saw her, I saw her. She said, what did did she look like? And the woman said, it's real strange. She's not eight foot tall and she doesn't look like a gorilla. And I said, really? They were just amazed. The woman actually looked like a woman. Yes. Because you're not a big person. I, too, expected somebody to be tall and bulky. Bulky, exactly. And you're, what, 5'3"? Five, 5'3". Three? Five, three. Did you have any trouble finding uniforms to fit or equipment, gear to fit? Yes, gear was hard to find to fit. It was always too big. Firefighters didn't come in size small oh. at that time. They do now. Now they finally got a line of women's you know, firefighting gear that fits really well. But I would just have to get... The tiniest men's gear I could find, which always I swam in, but if you hike them suspenders up, <laughs> you can't at least walk in it. So it was hard. And you had more protection that way, too, because of the height of the pants being... Oh, big. my gosh, yeah, they came down there up to my arm. Yes, <laughs> I can imagine. Columbia Heights is a small area that's on the border of Minneapolis. You mentioned some stories before we started the interview about Minneapolis versus Columbia Heights. You know, in 1978, things are finally starting to thaw out a little bit. There was huge turf problems. And, you know, there was a, a, I shouldn't say problem, but people were very proud of being a firefighter in Minneapolis. And Columbia Heights, of course, was Podunk Junction. <laughs> and Columbia Heights was so proud of having a good fire department, which it was. They didn't, you know, need help from nobody. I, that was a little bit of the attitude. We see now 37th Avenue is the division between Columbia Heights and Minneapolis. So anything 3700 or 3701 and higher was a Columbia Heights call below that. You were in Minneapolis, and that might have must that line it could have been the Berlin Wall. You didn't cross that line. Uh, except on very special occasions, and with I want to respect Minneapolis fire here because there was some big fires in Columbia Heights, and of course Minneapolis came in to help. Of course they did, but there was uh, 
a little bit of pride, and I can remember one time there was a car player that was called in, it was called in at 37th and Central Avenue, right on the border. And when the fire trucks pulled up, the people were pushing the car from the Minneapolis side onto the Columbia Heights side so that Columbia Heights could fight the fire. Because we were closer, the fire barn was only seven blocks from there versus Minneapolis having to come quite a long way, like mm-hmm. 13 or 14 blocks. So <laughs> there was lots of things like that. Finally, in, in, in the 70s, things warmed up a little bit. And then, of course, it was everybody helped everybody. But I can remember those stories of people saying, is it our side or is it their side? Oh. And we would sit and look at the map and have to determine whose side of the fence it was on before we would go to fight it. Okay, where are we now? Okay, we are in 1980, 1988, that you have finished your career as a full-time firefighter. You've taken classes. You're an investigator. What happened after 1988? That was about the time that I really started getting sick of the chief and the assistant chief giving me hell for being a woman. Even in 1988, I was still getting a lot of crap from both of them. I caught the eye of the state fire marshal's office because when we would have a fire that we'd investigating and they would send one of their state fire marshals, naturally I would tag them off to assist. And so for a few years, they got to know me as someone who could investigate fire. So it was just about that time that I was getting fed up with the politics in Columbia Heights Fire Department that they asked me at the State Fire Marshal's Office if I would like to test for one of their positions. I did. I got the job. I left. It all seemed to work out just fine. I was very sad to be firefighting. That's the best job you could ever have. Always something different, always something exciting. But uh, it was a good move for me, too. I'm happy with this as a state fire marshal because I investigate all sorts of fires. So let's talk about your duties as a state fire marshal. As a state fire marshal, or I should say a deputy state fire marshal, there's only one state fire marshal. Oh, okay. and that marshal has many deputies, of which I'm one. Okay. I respond to fires anywhere in the state, but they like to keep me in the metro area. Where there is arson, they think there's arson, where there's been a serious injury or where there's been a fatality. And then what I do is I physically process the scene. I dig it out like an archaeologist might, and I I reconstruct it. I'm in their hands-on, and I figure out where the fire started, and then I figure out why it started or what started it at that particular point in the building. And then if it's arson, I figure out, I try to figure out who did it. And then if, if necessary, you know, do that investigation and bring it all up to the, the ideal ending would be to have somebody arrested and tried and go to jail mm-hmm. for uh, doing an arson fire. That's pretty much my duty. Do you have a lot of those around? A lot of arson fires? Lots. Lots. Over half the fires I'm called to are definitely arson fires. And if they're not, then the rest of them that are left over are either accidental that they couldn't figure out, and then I finally figured out it was an accident, or somebody was killed. 
So I see a lot. The average fire department probably only going to see, you know, 25 to 30 percent of their fires be arson, but I see a, a larger majority. How successful are you finding the perpetrator, if you want to refer to that? Oh, all of us state fire marshals are pretty damn successful. It's really not... People think, oh, there's nothing left when a fire burns. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? There's nothing left. Once you learn how, we're almost never screening. We, we can almost always tell you exactly what started the fire. Sometimes the who is a little bit more difficult, but um, the majority of the time, we know where, we know how, we know who. Oh. So arsonists are too bright. Not at all. How do you determine what started the fire, the arson, for instance, in an arson case? Well, when you go into a fire scene, you learn to read patterns. Fire, when fire burns things, it burns it always according to the laws of physics. Fire burns up and out because heat rises. Fire chars things quite deeply, like say wood will be charred quite deeply if it burns 15 minutes versus if it only burns 5 minutes, it'll be less charred. You start to read the patterns. Where did it burn most intensely? Uh, where did the damage uh, occur the lowest? And when I say lowest, I mean in terms of sea level. Uh, do you see any interesting patterns that could indicate that something burned much more quickly than expected? Mm. Or can you find signs of a slow, smoldering fire, which would cause you to look for some different causes? A cigarette started fire is going to burn along, and it's going to leave slow patterns. And somebody who splashes gasoline in a room and lights is going to leave patterns that are much, much different. Oh. And you learn to recognize the differences. You use those patterns to find where, because those patterns are going to point you where the fire started. And you use the size patterns on the walls and floors. You look at light bulbs, they'll point the way. You look at things that are plastic or wax. You look at glass. Glass actually can show you different temperatures and different conditions on the fire. It can bring you back to where the fire most likely began. Kind of all deductive reasoning. And then once you, once you do it, and you might have to send things to a laboratory to test it, you can come to a conclusion, almost all the time you come to a conclusion, where and what. Hmm. And then the third question, the who, yeah. the who did it, that's the most frustrating part, because people lie. <laughs> did you light this fire? I asked everybody, I asked them flat out, did you light the fire? And of course, you know, to a person, they all say, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of stuff. Yeah, they say, fortunately, I saved the insurance papers. Oh, yeah. <gasps> Okay. I did want to tell you one thing, though, that I want to include. When I was first on, I became a professional firefighter in the fall, and in the, I believe it was in the fall, the fire chiefs have a regular yearly uh, conference. And my fire chief, of course, brought me to the chief's conference to show me how. Oh. Because he had what he called the first female combat firefighter in the whole state. <laughs> so he walked me up to a group of fire chiefs. I'm assuming they were all chiefs. It was all old men. Who were standing in a circle talking. And he said, fellas, I want to introduce to you 
my newest career path, and he gestured my way and he said, this is Denise. And there was total silence. And all the men just stared at me. And one man in particular, I can remember, looked me down. He looked me up. Then he turned to my chief and said, well, we got a nigger. <gasps> I don't know what happened after that, darling, because my ears were just roaring with the blood going boom, 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 I, I don't know what happened. All I know is that I turned and I excused myself and I left. There's a lot. I will, I will not put up with that anymore. Of course, no one should. Right. Woman, man, or anything. And I have, I will, I've stood up at conferences and said, you are out of line. And I have had people look at me and nod their heads and say, you know, you're right. But they didn't have the guts to stand up and do it. Now, I've, I've done that two or three times in rooms full of people when they say something really rotten about, sometimes about women. Sometimes about other people. That was out of line, and I just stand there and I wait for the apology. And by God, it comes. For mm. honesty, what's the best part about your job? People. I love people. I probably love people too much because when we were firefighters, we had to have a fundraiser, and our fundraiser used to be to go door to door and sell raffle tickets for a big wagon load of groceries. So every summer we'd go out for a few nights and we'd ring doorbells and knock on doors and sell raffle tickets. And finally, they gave me a, a radio to keep in my pocket. And I said, why? Well, you just should have a radio if you're going to be going knocking door to door. Well, there were 12 of us out knocking on doors, but I get the radio? Okay. Well, I'm chit-chatting away with somebody. And all of a sudden I hear my name on the radio and I pick it up and I say, go ahead. He says, where the hell are you? <laughs> They're all three blocks down there and I'm yapping. I was, that's what I gave me the radio. I was yapping. <laughs> People would invite me in to have a cookie. There was one lady opening the door and she was, she looked like, you know, Mrs. Butterworth. She was a tiny little lady with gray hair and blonde. I knocked on the door and she opened it and she looked at me and she said, oh! And she turned around and hollered over her shoulder, Leonard, come quick, it's a fire lassie. <laughs> and he came and he looked at me and he said, well, I'll be darned, good for you. And he, he bought my tickets. <laughs> <It's really laughs> What's the worst thing about your job? It's, it's cold in the winter, it's dirty, it's hard, I get back aches. It's just the physical work. The physical work is very hard. The people are the best, but shoveling through a fire scene when the wind chills 30 below. Oh, <laughs> not, not a job for a wimp, I tell you that. <laughs> what advice would you give somebody who may be interested in this kind of career? Go for it. Go for it and don't look back and don't let anybody tell you you can't. I can remember getting nervous, and this was within the last five years, because I was going to have to speak at some type of a conference. They want you, the big deal to get the woman fire marshal to speak. And I was nervous, and I remember saying that to some fella, and he, he had stopped walking or whatever we were doing, and he looked at me and he said, Demaris, you have nothing left to prove. What the hell are you nervous about? 
you have absolutely nothing to prove. Now go out there and just be powerful and be great. And I never thought of myself as having finally hit it, you know, finally gotten there, I have nothing to prove, but boy, I, you know, I tell you, anybody that wants to do this, do it. You can do it. You, you, you do it, and then you'll be proud of it, and there's, there's nothing that should hold anybody back, because it's, you need a lot of brain power, and you need a lot of willpower, and you need a sense of humor. Thank you so much for the interview. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for all the information and the laughter and the tears. Well, it's been absolutely wonderful. It's my Thank you very much. Read all about it in the Noka County Library Minute. Hello, everyone, and thank you for stopping by. Today we have some books about fires and the men and women who fight them, as well as some books detailing the experiences of women in the workplace and their struggles with sexism in the workplace. The first book I have is Smoke Jumper, a memoir by one of America's most select airborne firefighters by Jason A. Ramos. Wilderness firefighter Jason A. Ramos gives a firsthand account of his experiences fighting forest fires in deep wilderness zones. Forest fires are growing bigger every year and smoke jumpers, the firefighters parachuted down into dense and dangerous areas to fight them, need special skills, adaptability to survive. The next book I wanted to talk about was called Gunflint Burning, Fire in the Boundary Waters by Carrie J. Griffith. Bringing back things to Minnesota and published by the University of Minnesota Press, Gunflint Burning tells an account of the Ham Lake Fire, one of the most destructive wildfires in Minnesota history. The fire took place in 2007 and burned 75,000 acres and hundreds of properties. It began on May 5, 2007 and burned uncontrolled until May 12th. A couple of books that I've included about women's experiences in the workplace and sexism in the workplace. Under the Bus, How Working Women Are Being Run Over by Caroline Fredrickson. Under the Bus was an important contribution to the discussion of women in the workplace and the sexism and racism that keeps them from breaking through that glass ceiling. Fredrickson talks about labor practices and how laws are written to allow for discrimination while at the same time purporting to be against it. I also wanted to include The Good Girls Revolt, How the Women of Newsweek Sued Their Bosses and Changed the Workplace by Lynn Povich. The Good Girls Revolt gives an anecdotal account of women fighting unfair work practices in the form of 46 women who sued Newsweek for discrimination and hiring and promotion. The case was the first female class action lawsuit and was inspirational to many other women. The author, Lynn Povich, was one of the women who participated in this revolt and gives her own story here. Thank you again for stopping by for the Library Minute, and we will see you next time. Get those library cards and reserve your copy today. What did you think, Rebecca? I really enjoyed that. She is someone that I could definitely look up to. She was so sweet when I connected with her. I didn't want this podcast to be a surprise. So I called her up on the phone and I sent her a draft of the podcast itself. When I was talking to her, she said that she totally forgot about this interview and that she was a lot of fun. <laughs> we only play with fun people. It was really fun to, to talk to her. And she sent a couple of photographs of 
her time as a firefighter and a deputy fire marshal. So you'll have to check those out on our show notes page, as well as there is more to the interview. Oh, that's not the whole thing? No, I had a really, I had to make some really hard choices and edit this over an hour long interview down to just about 23 minutes. And uh, so if you want to listen to the entire interview, uh, you can listen to it on The Vault on our website. For those who don't know what The Vault is yet. It is a special section of our website. If you go to the History 21 at the top of the menu, you'll find the vault. It is a $5 a month subscription and you can get exclusive access to our programs, to some fun interviews that we have pulled together, uh, special collections content. Uh, We'll put some games up. We'll do all sorts of fun and interesting things on there. Um, so it'd be one more way that you could support us through the, the COVID times. Yeah. Denise specifically talks about uh, starting her career out as a sheriff's deputy in Hennepin County in 1978. Four generations of her family that were Columbia Heitzers and also firefighters and more about her time as a deputy fire marshal. Oh, if you have podcast ideas, hop on over to our website. There is a new submission form there that you can send us ideas for your own chit chat on our podcast. What part of Anoka County history needs to be memorialized in podcast form? See you next time. If you have a question or you would like to share your own story with us, you can find us at anokacountyhistory.org. We are all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for all who scroll by. For our members and donors, you can find special access to podcast extras, as well as the latest digital resources at our vault located on the website. History 21 is a production of the Anoka County Historical Society. Remember, the present is the past of the future.